Luke 2, verse 1. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Quirinius, or Cyrenius, was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So I want to speak to you this morning on a subject. Is there room for Jesus in your heart? Is there room for Jesus in your heart? Pastor Larry, would you lead us to the Lord in prayer? Amen. Thank you. Is there room for Jesus in your heart? Now, in verse 1, it says, and it came to pass. This is a uh, famous Hebraic saying, and it came to pass in those days. And we're dealing in approximates here. Nobody knows exactly when the birth of Jesus was. And uh, some people are very contentious about that kind of thing. And they say we shouldn't celebrate. And I think that's a Romans 14 issue. Uh, We can agree to disagree about those things. Some people regard Christmas. Others don't. Uh, One thing we can probably all agree on is that we've made it something that... uh, uh, it's probably far from anything <laughs> biblical, the way that we, we act during this time period. It's, it tends to be more of a stressful thing than anything, doesn't it? It's a rush and stress and people are in a bad mood. But uh, keep in mind that this story did not begin with the words once upon a time or, you know, in the land of Middle Earth, for those of you who are familiar with the Lord of, of the Rings or for my Star Wars fans uh, in a galaxy far, far away. That's not how this begins. It, it begins, uh, and it came to pass, and this is history. I've got four points this morning, and I alliterated all of them, so Adrian Rogers will be proud of me. Um, <laughs> those of you who listen to Adrian Rogers know what I'm talking about. They're all going to start with a P. The first point I want to make is proof that history is his story, God's story. Number one, proof that history is his story starts out with a historical uh, mile marker here. Now, if you turn to chapter 1 of Luke, you will learn in verse 3 uh, that Luke is writing to his friend named Theophilus. That means lover of God, by the way. And he says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto you in order, and that means in consecutive order. So when, when you're reading Luke's gospel, you're reading things as they happened in sequence. It's not so with Matthew, not so with some of the others. But when you're reading Luke, you're reading it as it, as it happens in real time. Um, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke is writing to his friend, Theophilus. So you're writing a letter to a friend. Uh, you're reading uh, a letter to a friend here, and he's describing how Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so the first thing he establishes to Theophilus is that this is a historical fact. Now, when Luke wants to be exact uh, as far as timing, you could go to uh, Luke chapter 3, for instance. How convenient is that? You don't have to switch books. Luke chapter 3, verse 1, and Luke is very specific, isn't he? He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, uh, Tiberius was the emperor when Jesus was crucified. Um, 
Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch, that means ruler of a fourth of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of uh, Iteria, and of the region of Trachonitis, and of, uh, okay, I'm not going to try to pronounce all these names. But anyway, when Luke is wanting to be exact on timing, he knows how to do so. And for some reason, he deliberately left the birth of Jesus vague. And I, you know, uh, so we, we celebrate on December 20th, or some people do. But uh, we don't know exactly when he was born. But let's go back to chapter 2. But he gives us some historical mile markers. There's a guy named Caesar Augustus. Does anybody know what his real name is? Because neither one of those is his real name. Da, 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 da. Octavian, thank you. His real name is Gaius Octavius. They called him Octavian. Now, he is the great uh, grand nephew of a guy named Julius Caesar. If you went to high school, uh, college, and you went through a literature course, your, your professor, your teacher probably made you suffer through Shakespeare. Amen? <laughs> and so you know a little bit about Julius Caesar? Well, he is the grand nephew of Julius Caesar. And Caesar took a real shine to him. He was his sister's uh, uh, grandson. And uh, he, he determined that, that Octavian would be the, the, uh, the successor when he died. And we all know how Julius died. And, uh, and there, was some, uh, there was some time of intrigue where him and Mark Antony were, uh, were kind of ruling, co-ruling. But then they went on the outs with one another. Long story short. Mark Anthony was married to Octavian's sister, and he cheated on her with a lady named Cleopatra. You ever heard of her? Queen of the Nile. And so anyway, they're having this torrid affair. Well, Mark Anthony is defeated by uh, Octavian. In 26 uh, B.C., the Senate confers upon Octavius the name Augustus. And Augustus means revered, majestic, or venerable. These are titles that should be reserved for God alone. So he, he uh, 26 B.C., he becomes known as Caesar. Caesar's a, a title, like Pharaoh or Kaiser. Uh, it's not his first name, just like Christ. It's not Jesus' last name. It's his title. Caesar Augustus. And uh, says he, he, uh, he made a decree. The Greek word for decree is dogma. So whenever you say dogma, you understand we're making a, a decree here. So he made a decree that the whole world. Now, the King James says that the whole world should be taxed. But uh, the Greek word is apographo, and it means to be written or recorded. So some of your translations are going to say he made a census or that they had to be registered. Um, and that's probably more accurate. Now, here's the thing. There's only two reasons why an emperor would conduct a census. Number one would be for military, uh, and the Jews were exempt from military service. The other reason would be for taxes, right? Uh, the emperor wants to make sure that everybody is paying plenty of taxes. Things don't change much, do they? <laughs> they don't change much over time. So uh, he makes a decree, and, uh, and he, he decrees that the whole, uh, the whole inhabited earth should be uh, registered. Now, Caesar Augustus has no concern about fulfilling Bible prophecy, I'm convinced. He just simply wants to increase his tax base. Because he, he's got projects he wants to get done, right? There's, ro there's roads that need to be paved and, and that kind of thing. So Luke gives us another mile marker in verse 2. He says this taxing or this registry, this census, was made when Cyrenius or Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
Now, this Quirinius is actually a historical person. His actual name is Publius Sulpicius Quirinius. Sounds like somebody from a Harry Potter novel or something. But uh, he, that's his name, but he's Quirinius. He was, the, he was the, over the province of Judea. And um, so these are real people. And Luke is a historian, and he's documenting historical facts that this really happened in, during this time period. And uh, there, there's some question about the dates of, of certain things, but archaeology and history bear out the fact that these two guys were literally in power uh, during this time period. Turn with me to uh, Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21. Now, God frequently uses world leaders to fulfill his uh, purposes, even if they're not saved. God said to Pharaoh, I've raised you up that I might display my power in the world. God used Nebuchadnezzar to chastise his people for not keeping the sabbatical years and for their idolatry. The next emperor, Cyrus, God used him to send the Jews out of exile back into the land and to rebuild their temple. And so Augustus Caesar uh, is being used in this same fashion. Proverbs 21. Addison just said amen. Did you see her over here clapping this morning while we were worshiping? She was praising the Lord. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Don't you ever forget that? We're going to have an election year next year, and you know, Lord only knows what we're going to be dealing with. Uh, but understand this, no matter who wins or who loses or, or what pandemic or pandemic they, they come up with, understand this, God's in control. The, heart, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turns it whithersoever he will. And God gave me this, this little thing to share with you. you. You feel free to quote me that, that the kings are pawns on God's chessboard. The kings are merely pawns on God's chessboard. Now, Mary and Joseph are, are insignificant people living in an insignificant place. Caesar Augustus didn't know anything about Mary and Joseph, I'm convinced. He didn't care anything about Bible prophecy. He didn't care anything about them. They're living in the middle of nowhere, and, a, and they're a couple of nobodies as far as the world is concerned. But understand this, God moved on the heart of the world emperor to get two people from Nazareth to Bethlehem. God knows what he's doing, and he cares about you, and there are no insignificant people in this world. You are important to God. So my first point is this proof that history is his story. Number two, the providence of God is on full display. Turn with me to Micah 5. Micah 5. <laughs> Now, God had a long time to plan for the birth of Jesus. The Bible says he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. The book of Galatians says, when the perfect time was come. The King James says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. So Christ was born at precisely the right time. God had a long time to plan for this. 
And what we're going to find out is that God is not concerned uh, about fulfilling his plans. His two priorities are not ease and efficiency. Can I get an amen on that? God's not always looking for the easiest way to get you from point A to point B. Are we in Micah 5 now? Look at verse 2. It says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, that is the ancient name for Bethlehem, Ephratah. You first introduced that in Genesis, I think around 38 or so. Uh, Rachel is buried there. That's where the tomb of Rachel is, um, Jacob's wife. But uh, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. See, Bethlehem is just kind of like a hamlet. It's not a big metropolis. It's not a huge significant place but though thou be little among the thousands of judah yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in israel whose goings forth have been from old from everlasting some of your translations will say from eternity you know what that means that means that this baby that's going to be born he's god like brother don was singing he's the great i am hallelujah when mary kissed her little baby she's kissing the face of god Wow, what an awesome thought. 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Micah predicted that the Son of God would be born in this little place called Bethlehem. All right. Now let's go back to Luke 2. And we see the providence of God in full display. Now, one of the issues that you and I, uh, one of the things that we're going to struggle with uh, throughout our lives is God's timing. God is never late, but I found this too. He's never early. <laughs> He's always right on time. Uh, it remind, reminds me of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. You know, Lazarus, Martha and Mary send word to Jesus. You know, the one that you love. That's how John refers to Lazarus. He whom thou lovest is sick. And uh, Jesus didn't go right away. He waited. And after Lazarus had been dead for four days... Jesus shows up, and, and I can't remember if it was Mary or Martha, but it doesn't matter. One, one of the sisters said, Lord, if you'd have been here, our brother wouldn't have died. He'd have just got here sooner. And Jesus said this. He says, you don't understand. Your brother's going to rise again. And she says, well, I know. She's an, eschatology, uh, an expert on eschatology. She says, I know he'll rise again at the last day, Jesus. And Jesus said, you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. And as soon as I move into the situation, your brother is going to go out of that tomb and he's going to come out walking. We're going to loose that mummy and let him go when he comes out of that grave. He said, Lazarus, come forth. But God's timing is one of the things that we're going to struggle with. Now, Mary is late in her pregnancy. She's probably third trimester, right? She's probably about eight months along. Um, and there's a, uh, there's a logistical problem. She's about uh, 75 or 80 miles from where she needs to be. Think about that. Now, it makes me wonder why Mary and Joseph didn't get to Bethlehem sooner. But you know what? God has all of his, his ducks in a row. You know, that just goes to show you that God was in control. See, God used this census by Augustus Caesar, by Octavian. He used this, uh, and apparently there was some urgency to it. Would you, don't you get that impression? That there was some urgency because otherwise Mary and Joseph wouldn't have had to leave when she's, you know, in her, her third trimester. But imagine this. This woman is great with child, the Bible says. Okay? Uh, I don't know how many of you ladies have ever been great with child, but I know 
just from experience, you know, not not firsthand, but secondhand experience, that uh, some of you say, well, you look like you're pregnant. Well, mind your business. These are the holidays. That's why they make stretchy pants. But anyway, that last trimester, mama's miserable, right? Amen, women? You can't get comfortable. You know, you got all these pillows in the bed, and everybody's getting on your nerves, and you're hot, even if it's... Uh, wintertime, you're, you're sweating. It's like, you know, leave me alone. And, and she's in this, uh, this situation, and she's 85 miles away from where, or excuse me, 80 miles away from where she needs to be. Now, in Luke 2, I'll eventually get there. It says, um, now it says in verse 3, uh, all went to be taxed everyone to his own city. Now, I think this was probably something that had to do with Herod and Quirinius. I don't, that, that wasn't a Roman custom to have people go to their hometown to be registered. You know, they don't care as long as they get their money, right? You can register in Charlotte or Morvan or Lyallsville or wherever. So apparently this was a Jewish, this probably was a Jewish custom. And they're, because they're concerned with tribal identity, you know, genealogies and so forth. So more than likely this, this was either the working of Herod or, or Quirinius, I don't know. But this, notice in verse 4 it says, Joseph went up from Galilee. Well, if you've ever looked on a map, um, uh, Bethlehem is south of Galilee. <laughs> so when he's talking about going up, he's not talking about uh, north and south. He's talking about topography. And understand this, that Jerusalem is about, not, not quite, but it's about 2,500 feet above sea level. So imagine being eight months pregnant, and you and your uh, husband are going to have to either go on foot or on a donkey, which wouldn't be a whole lot better, I mean, and ride 75 miles, and they could go probably about 20 miles in a day. So this is about a four- or five-day journey, okay? And she's eight months pregnant, and she's got to get over the uh, 2,500 feet above sea level. You know, that's a climb. That's a climb. And don't you think maybe Mary might have thought to herself, God, why me? Why now? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought when, when God's letting things happen in your life, have you ever just got down on your knees and said, Lord, I don't know why this, I don't know why me, and I don't know why now. But God knows right where you are. And he said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. He said, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. All things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And God's not concerned with ease and efficiency at this point. Think about the, uh, the seeming um, uh, paradox here. Back up to Luke 1. Notice how kind I am to you today. I'm keeping you close. You're not having to do a whole lot of flipping. I may make myself out to be a liar in a minute, so I better not brag too much. Luke 1. Now, notice in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into the city of Galilee named Nazareth. Amazing. God dispatches Gabriel to a, no, a nothing town, you know, to, a, to an unknown young girl. The, most of your experts say Mary was probably 13 years old or so, 13 or 14. Just a young girl in a, no, in a nowhere kind of place. And, uh, and here comes Gabriel. Gabriel's always got announcements about the Messiah. Remember, Gabriel came to Daniel and told told him when the Messiah was going to come. So Gabriel uh, comes to her, 
to a virgin as fast to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Uh, that's important, you know, because the Messiah has got to be a descendant of King David. The girl's name was Mary, and the angel came into her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Wow. Can you imagine God telling you that? You're the most blessed. Now, notice it doesn't say above women. We're not to worship her. It says among women. You see that? Okay. <laughs> I just had to get that in there. I love my Catholic friends, but you guys need to get, get with it. Quit, quit praying to other people. And There's one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. Okay. <clears throat> and when she saw him, she was troubled at the saying, yeah, I would be too. <laughs> and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That sounds good, doesn't it? And behold, you shall conceive in your womb, bring forth a son, call his name Jesus. That means Savior, by the way. He shall be great, shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? She just went from a peasant girl to the queen. <laughs> Are you with me? All of this sounds good. Verse 33, he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. You know, after I got a message like that, I would start making some changes. <laughs> I'd probably buy me a new wardrobe. I'd put it on credit if I had to, <laughs> right? Because I'm going to give birth to the Son of God. I mean, I can't be wearing this stuff, this whole thing. i got to get some new clothes. You know, you, you've seen those memes on, on the Internet. It says, you know, uh, I'm not going to tell anybody if I win the lottery, but you'll, there'll be signs. You've seen those. <laughs> so you know, Mary hears, you're highly favored among women. You're blessed. Your, your son's going to be the Son of God. He's going to rule the throne of his father, David. And yet, here she is, eight months pregnant, in Nazareth, and she's got to go 2,500 feet above sea level, 80 miles to get to Bethlehem. You think she might have had some questions? I mean, she's human, right? But the providence of God is on full display. You think there was any wagging tongues there in Nazareth? You think there was anybody gossiping about them? It may have been God protecting them, uh, you know, uh, from, from all that gossip, too, and all that slander. People question, why was Joseph taking Mary along with him? Well, you know, your wife's eight months pregnant. She's pregnant with the Son of God, by the way. It's not like Joseph would say, you know what, I'll be back in a few days. You know, you just take care of the Son of God while I'm gone, right? He wants to be there and be a part of it and to be with her. So they're going up to, um, uh, to, to Bethlehem. God has a way of getting us where we need to be, point number two. We've talked about the proof that history is his story. We talked about the providence of God on full display. Now I want to talk to you about my third point, and that is the poverty of the royal family. The poverty of the royal family. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This birth narrative is kind of like a paradigm for the whole life and ministry of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, you realize he left a throne in glory. He left all of the angels worshiping him. Streets of gold, that kind of thing. Though he was rich, yet for your sake. Everybody say, for my sake. You just put yourself there. For your sake, he became what? Poor. So that you, through his poverty, might be rich i'll tell you what 
I don't care what your bank account says. And if, you know, if yours is anything like mine during Christmas time, it's not looking as good as it did a few months ago. I don't care what your bank account says. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are rich. You are rich. In another place, Jesus said, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air, air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He lived a life of poverty. Let's go back to Luke 2. If you'll notice, just about everything Jesus ever had was borrowed. In a borrowed place to be born in. In a borrowed tomb to be buried in and so forth. Notice he was wrapped in swaddling clothes, literally strips of cloth. Now you would think a, a, a king... A king would be born in a, a glorious robe, right? He'd be arrayed in purple and fine linen and that kind of thing. But here he is wrapped in these swaddling cloths. And he's lying in a manger. Now, I like to tell this story every year, and I'm sorry you have to hear it again. Well, no, I'm not sorry. But when I was a young boy, I came to this church when I was a little kid in elementary school. I came again when I was a teenager. And then y'all lost your mind and called me to be your pastor about six years ago. But my, my first stint here, I, I was, they drafted me to be in the Christmas play. And uh, I guess they had assigned all the other parts. I guess even the donkey had been assigned. But, and they decided I could be the manger. You know. You know, from the very beginning, God's had a sense of humor, you know. Let's give this guy a real small speaking part here. You look like a manger. You know what a manger is? A manger is a feeding trough. And we see these elaborate mangers, you know, in the nativity scenes. Most likely it was made out of stone. It's just, it's just a rock, kind of like the cave he was buried in. And uh, I remember my line. I still remember my line. My line was, I am the manger where Jesus slept, warm and safe in the sweet-smelling hay. But I thank God he allowed me to be the manger in that play. Yeah. Don't ever forget the impact you could have in the life of a child. I'll never forget that. And I was so proud to be the manger where Jesus slept, even though I didn't know him then. But he knew me. He knew me. Thank you, Jesus. It's a feeding trough. And this would be a sign to the shepherds. Um, look, look with me in, uh, in the same chapter, Luke 2. Now, notice when God appears to the shepherds. Where am I at? Look to you. <laughs> oh, verse 12. I'm sorry. Zoned out here. Now, notice what the sign is to the shepherds. This shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe... And there's two things that'll, that'll be the, the identification. He'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's a mark of poverty. And he'll be lying in a feeding trough. Imagine that. The angels from on high appear to the shepherds. They see the glory of God. What? Wow. And the angel said, look, you're going to find this baby. And the way you'll be able to find the son of God, he'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a feeding trough. You'll find God in a feeding trough. That's amazing to me. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said there were six reasons, he believed, 
that Christ would be laid in the manger. Number one, it would illustrate his humiliation. His whole life would be marked by humiliation. He humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, and ultimately he died a criminal's death a human, uh, de for a crime he did not commit. Number two, showing that he was the king of the poor. You know, I'm sure that Augustus Caesar and Herod and, and these other rulers uh, wouldn't want to associate with the common folk. But, but this is a king that uh, has time for the shepherds. Shepherds were the lowliest of society. They weren't even allowed to testify in court in those days. Their witness was not considered reliable, and that's who God appeared to. Number three, uh, the manger is approachable. Anybody can come to that manger. Uh, don't have to go through any secretaries or royal appointments. Folks, you can come to Jesus just as you are any time of day. You don't have to wait for the preacher. Sometimes people will say, well, uh, invariably, anytime I'm at a gathering, somebody will say, Henry, why don't you say the blessing? Because I'm the pastor, and I'm, and I'm glad to do it. They'll say, because you got a hotline to God. And I always correct them. I said, no, 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 you got a hotline to God too. Anybody can call on the Lord. Anybody. The priesthood of every believer, we have access to God. Number four, he's free, he's free to all. Now, I know we, uh, when we think about uh, no room at the inn, some of us think about the Holiday Inn, don't we, or the Ramada Inn. <laughs> you know, we picture this guy at the front desk, this grouchy old man, oh, sorry, no vacancy here. But chances are this place is what they call a caravansary. It's a big shelter where travelers could come with their animals, and they, they could, you know, kind of like a homeless shelter of sorts, but they could just come in there, and, um, and their animals will be placed outside, probably tied right outside. Where they could, <clears throat> or they could feed him and such. <clears throat> Number five, the beast. This is the place where beasts were fed, which tells us that even the most wild beast of a man can be tamed by the Holy Spirit. God can change the heart of any man, even a beast. The sixth thing that he says is that after Christ left, the beast fed there again. So if you let the Lord pass you by and you don't make room for Him in your heart, you'll go right back to your beastly nature. Well, those are six reasons that Spurgeon had for the manger. So we've talked about the proof that history is his story. We've talked about the providence of God on full display. We've talked about the poverty of the royal family. Here's my final point. I want to talk about people who make room for Jesus. People who make room for Jesus. Now, there were a few people in the Christmas story that made room for Jesus. Mary did. Joseph made room for Jesus. The shepherds made room for Jesus. Uh, Simeon made room for Jesus. Anna made room for Jesus. The wise men made room for Jesus. But most of the world had no room for Jesus. Caesar Augustus had no room for him. Herod had no room for him. I'm going to preach about Herod and the slaughter of the babies here in a, in a few weeks, Lord willing. What a, what a cheerful topic, right? But uh, the, the wise men didn't come at the nativity. They came later. That's why I'm going to preach after Christmas. I want to preach about the wise men just so we get our chronology straight. But um, Herod had no room for Christ. He's going to try to kill him in a few years. The priest describes the Pharisees. They had no room for Jesus. He was a threat to the establishment. What about the town of Bethlehem? I mean, after all, this is the place where the Messiah should be born. Surely they'd welcome the Messiah. No. What about these people in the can uh, caravansary? That's not an easy word to say. 
And I may not be saying it right, so don't repeat me. <laughs> what about the people in the caravansary? You would think somebody would have tried to accommodate this pregnant woman to help her. But you get the impression that they're just kind of on their own. They're just trying to fend for themselves. <laughs> Here's one for you. What about Christmas? Is there room for Jesus in Christmas anymore? I mean, we got Santa Claus, we got reindeers, we got Frosty the Snowman, we got trees, we got garland, we got bows, we got presents, we got chestnuts roasted on an open fire. <laughs> We've got uh, practically anything and everything except Jesus in Christmas. I think we need to, if we're going to worship, if we're going to celebrate Christmas, and I do, by the way, I celebrate the birth of Jesus, I don't worship the Christmas tree. If we're going to celebrate Jesus, we ought to make him the focal point of it, shouldn't we? I mean, imagine, Lori's got a birthday coming up soon. I won't tell you how old she's going to be. Somebody else to see. Just imagine, here, this, this is going to give you a little picture in your mind. Imagine that we send out announcements to everybody that we're having a birthday party for Lori. And I reserve the, the nicest banquet hall in uh, Mecklenburg County. Or let's go to Union County. I hate Charlotte. I get the nicest banquet hall in Union County. And we have ice sculptures, and I hire cello players, and I hire violin players, and flautists, and piano players, and I have hors d'oeuvres from the finest catering outfit, and we have Kobe beefsteaks, and we have shrimps, and or scrimps as Lori calls them, scrimps, and crab legs, and the finest delicacies and uh, uh, cakes and pies. And we decorate the place like the Taj Mahal. And I send word to Lori. I said, there's just one thing, honey. You're not invited to your party. We'll just assume you stay home while we celebrate. And that's exactly what we've done with Christmas. We've made it all about us and nothing about him. I'm talking about people who make room for Jesus. You know, the world still doesn't have much room for Jesus. Jesus told a parable of, of, of four kinds of people, the parable of the sower and the soils. All four were exposed to the Word of God in some way. Only one group actually bore fruit. Only 25% had any room for Jesus. And Jesus said, if you don't understand this parable, you won't understand any of them. So that tells me the parable of the sowers and the soils is teaching us an important truth. And if you would look at statistical data, don't Google it right now, but if you Google it, you'll find out that about 30% of the world claims to be Christian, and that includes all cultic groups too. So guess what the number probably is? It's probably 25% that's actually Christian. 75% of 8 billion people on the planet have no room for Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? It's horribly sad. Turn with me to John's gospel. First John, excuse me, John chapter 1, and we'll close. People who make room for Jesus. John chapter 1. You know, I heard a preacher say this week, and I thought it was so, it, he was not eloquent at all. He was just an old country preacher like me. But he said, you know, some folks are just going to busy their way into hell. Just so busy, you know. It's not that they're involved in some gross immorality, 
But it's just, it's just no time for Jesus. Just busy your way into hell. John 1. Notice in verse 11. It says, he came into his own and his own received him not. Here's the good news. But as many as received him. I want to say that again. As many as received him. Let me put it to you this way, without doing damage to the text. I'm trying to agree with the spirit of the text here. To those who make room for him in their heart, to those he gave the power, the Greek word is exousia, the right or the authority. He gave the authority to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. That's the condition of faith, you see. You don't have to busy your way into hell. You can be a good neighbor. You can be a good employee. You can be a good church member and still be lost. But you can be saved. You know how you can be saved? Today, make room in your heart and say, I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I believe that you are the Son of God. And verse 14 gives us the Christmas story. The Bible says that the Word was made flesh. A.K.A. Jesus was born in Bethlehem exactly when God said it would happen in the manner that he prescribed. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Would you stand? I don't know where you are in your life right now. I don't know what has befallen you. Chances are we've all been kicked a little bit this year. Had the wind knocked out of our sails? Maybe you're here questioning, why me? Why now? But the most important decision that you will ever make is where will you spend eternity? Some of you are giving great thought into what you're going to buy for your children for Christmas or your spouse. or your lo- You've made, you, you put great thought into how you're going to spend your next vacation, the reservations that you're going to make. You need to settle in your heart the most important decision that you will ever make. And that is, where will you spend eternity? Because you will live forever somewhere. You will. If you reject Jesus Christ, you'll spend eternity separated from God in the lake of fire and out of darkness in torment and misery. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Nobody has to go there. The good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The good news is if you believe he died on the cross for your sins and he rose from the dead on that third day, if you'll simply make room for him in your heart, right where you are, it doesn't matter what your past is. doesn't matter what you've done. There's nothing you've done that God can't forgive. If you simply make room in your heart, you say, Jesus Christ, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I believe you. I have my complete trust in you. I place it in you today. He will take the righteousness of Jesus Christ and put it on your account, and you can be saved. And you can receive the greatest gift of all this Christmas, and that is the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you need him today or if you need anything from the Lord, this altar is open. Would you come?